You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 42 of Distilling Theology. I'm your host, Blake Courtright, joined as always by my co-host, Justin Van Riper. What's going on, man? How's it going? I am so incredibly pleased i am i am filled with the joy of a thousand bears eating honey um to be here <laughs> you know what today this is, is a special day for us it is uh well for one thing we hit twenty thousand downloads hey! so thank you all uh i don't know how we got here from two goofballs recording in a <laughs> in a living room with one mic a year ago but Praise the Lord. We've done it. We've uh, done it. We have officially become the biggest podcast. <laughs> in- <laughs> We're coming for you, uh, bro, Jogan. Um, and also, we're celebrating one year of distilling theology. <laughs> I can't uh, believe it, man. I can't dude, even believe it. Can you? Yeah. It, well, the crazy thing is we recorded, it was like early September when I came out to visit you last year and yep. we sat down. In one day and recorded four episodes and then recorded all the intro materials, uh, which in hindsight was not the greatest plan. <laughs> we had one mic. We had two pairs of crappy headsets. Yep. Uh, we had one laptop. It was just an experience. It was it was something. So if you go back and listen to episode one, two, three and four, you can also hear the progression because we started recording like. It was like early afternoon. Maybe it was late morning. We didn't mm-hmm. have anything to do. It was like a Saturday. Uh, but then each episode, we obviously tasted the spirits that we were trying. So like by the end of the day, we'd had four, you know, four samples. So see if you can pick that up uh, when you go and go and listen. I, we were good. We we took breaks and ate and drank a lot of water between. Um, yeah. All things considered a very responsible experience. But man, dude, what a year it has been. We, yeah. uh, we've got I, I our have not patronage. Yeah. yeah, I have not expected anything. I mean, we thought, hey, we're going to go big or go home. And we just blasted out with a patron account like right away. And we're like, let's do it. Let's just go for it. <laughs> and now we have a huge group of people who uh, are so generous and, and yeah. make the show possible. Um, and we really enjoy doing this. We have a blast. Um, it's become yeah. part of our uh, life routine. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we get to learn and grow and be sanctified and edified with all of you. And um, we've gotten to meet some really cool people uh, that yeah. otherwise probably never would have happened. And uh, and you know, I love I love e- even even the Facebook group alone was worth starting oh, yeah. the podcast. I mean, it's been a huge, exciting adventure, and I can't wait to see what this next year holds. You know, it's crazy um, to think, man. Ho- hopefully, it'll hold a little less Corona. Oh, touche. <laughs> we'll see what touche. happens. Yeah, man, it's been it's been amazing. And I'm very excited. We got some some fun stuff planned out for the next couple of months. Um, And we are working on getting some other guests on people. Some of you guys may recognize 
Uh, and again, after after our last couple episodes, we're like, well, we we should just get the best people to talk about the topics that mm-hmm. we're doing when we're, we're you know when we want to have someone on to interview. Like, why not? Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, and yeah, man, it's been it's been a blast. So to celebrate one year of distilling theology, what are we sipping tonight? I'm super excited. So the very first episode, we drank Teeling Single Malt Irish Whiskey. Mm. It was whiskey. Wasn't bad. Wasn't the greatest thing I've ever had. Um, But it was something that we had in town. We went shopping and we got some stuff. And so in the spirit of that, we are now drinking Teeling Small Batch Rum Cask finish Irish whiskey, which I am super excited about. Um, Mm. Before uh, before we started recording, I was telling Blake as I was smelling this that I can tell that it was finished in rum casks because it has a very rum smell. And rum has kind of become my go to uh, spirit as far as like if I'm if I'm sitting down at night and I just want a spirit and I don't have like a specific whiskey in mind, I just go Mm. to rum. I really enjoy it. I I love the um, very sweet nature of it without being. Um, sweet in the sh- sort of sherry way you get with something like Belveni uh, and some of those other uh, delicious sure. um, scotches. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, it's like a tropical experience. <laughs> and I enjoy yeah, it. Man. So I'm, I'm excited for this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This one was bottled at 46% alcohol by volume. Again, it's a small batch whiskey. It doesn't have an age statement on it, um, but it's non-chill filtered. So we appreciate that transparency. Thank you, Teeling. Uh, the spirit of Dublin, it says on there. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Dublin, Ireland. Um, very authentic. Not my the accent. The spirit though. of Dublin. There you, you go. Get the accent correct. See, I'm, I'm still stuck with the <laughs> Scottish Presbyterians. What can I say? Um, this was bottled in February of 2018. So um, this has been, yeah, it, it's been fun. I, I don't remember the last time I tried this. So this will be the first time I've had this one in a long time. So I'm. Mm. I remember not being blown away when I sipped it last time, but you know what? I'm ready to be. I'm ready to be uh, proven wrong. It's been sitting in the glass for a couple of minutes. Uh, here's a couple notes from their website. Your palate has been sanctified over this last year. Like, we'll see how we'll see how it is. We shall see. They describe uh, that the corn and grain element of the blend brings a distinct sweetness, acting as a canvas for the rich roasted caramel and toffee character of the malted barley. So there is corn and grain in this whiskey as well as malt barley. Uh, and then the grain and malt whiskeys are aged separately in X bourbon barrels at a ratio, ratio of three to one, roughly three to one, uh, grain to malt. So it's more grain whiskey than it is malt whiskey. Again, as opposed to the last thing that we had from Teeling was a single malt. So there were no grain whiskeys in it, just malt. Um, and blending in small batches and finishing in Central American rum casks allow the grain and malt whiskey to marry uh, and take on subtle dried fruit characters. So I'm excited. What do you smell out of the gate, my man? Because obviously you're getting some rum, oh, rum yeah. reminiscing, as it were. It's, not quite, as, it's not quite as like banana-y as you might get from a rum. Um, but there's definitely like the vanilla, the apple pie sort of smell. You get the... I actually do get... You know what? I, I get like banana pudding. Okay, sure, sure. Or yeah, banana bread. Makes sense. Right. Like not not necessarily bananas in the, the super yeah. fresh way, but it's like banana bread, banana pudding somewhere in that area. It, it could be like a cinnamon banana bread almost. Um, yep. With the vanilla. Yep. There's definitely a little bit of citrus, some orange, maybe mm-hmm. some uh, some lemon, possibly. Yeah. A little, little bit of spice. I'm I'm going to paint the scene here. <laughs> it 
it's 6.30 in the morning on Saturday. No, it's, <laughs> sorry, it's 8.30 in the morning on Saturday. <laughs> 6.30 a.m. Like, I'm still asleep, man. <laughs> yeah, no, no, sorry. We'll, we'll back that up. It's it's 8.30 in the morning on a, on a cold fall Saturday. The windows are slightly ajar. Fresh banana bread is uh, has come out of the oven and you've put some butter on it and a little bit of honey on the side. And maybe uh, your son is eating an orange in, in, you know, next to you. So there's that citrus rind going on and, um, <laughs> some <is> amazing. <laughs> story time. <laughs> no, but I, I, there, there's actually a lot more going on here that then I noticed the first time. So that's very encouraging. There's, um, there's almost a smell of like freshly cut grass to be honest with you. You know, you know, Justin, that's just the, the cold fall leaves blowing in the window. <laughs> Actually, leaves usually smell terrible when they're rotting on the ground. Yeah, I know. It's true. It's true. Now, this is this is really interesting. I think the major notes for me are. Um, like like I said, that banana pudding that's dried out by some kind of baking spice, maybe a cinnamon. Um, there's almost a little bit of brown sugar sweetness going on there, which makes sense. Maybe a little bit of nuttiness as well. Again, very banana bread e to there me. There could be there could be some berries, almost like a berry jam, like blackberries. Sure. Yeah, there's something fruity like going on there that's not overbearing, um, and it definitely has that that like malt and grain character. Like it yeah. still smells like yeah. a whiskey. Um, to those of you that that say like. What do you guys smell? Also, it really helps that we have these awesome Glen Karen glasses that help to, um, you know, shape the whiskey. If you want to see what they look like, you can join our Facebook group or you can follow us on Instagram slash Distilling Theology uh, where we post them fairly regularly. But anyways, I'm excited to get in, taste this and get into yes. our uh, juicy and exciting topic for the evening. So cheers. That's more unique than I anticipated. Almost like rose petals mm-hmm. uh, with jelly, maybe some lemon. Definitely, definitely kind of dry. There's like dried herbs, maybe. The finish is kind of mouth-watering, though. Yeah, yeah. Which right is up, interesting. Right on the sides of the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how these different things interact. We'll have to have Eric back on soon, wink, wink, uh, to tell us more about why <laughs> that happens. Uh, but I'm not There's a rapper. A little, bit of, a little bit of caramel on the end there. Yeah, and that makes sense. Honey. That would make sense from the ex uh, bourbon casks mm-hmm. that you would get some of that caramelly. You, you know, you have like a corn based whis- whiskey in this blend um, that was aged with ex bourbon barrels, and so I think that that makes a lot of sense why you would have some of that caramel note. Um, uh, the mouth, honestly, it, overall, I mean, that's a it's a almost like a creamy, dry, spicy Irish mm-hmm. fruity. Rum smelling whiskey. <laughs> so it's too, too many descriptors. <laughs> it's says good. the guy who. It's good. I would drink this. Um, I would drink this yeah. frequently. Let me see. Uh, locally, this retails for thirty five dollars a bottle. So mm. I have no complaints at that mm-hmm. price point. This yeah, this drinks better price. than uh, you know some of the bourbons that are marked up into that range. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take another swig just for science before we we jump in. But <laughs> I like this. This is good. Um. Growing up, the only Irish whiskey I ever heard about was either uh, Redbreast or Jameson. And so having been able to sort of branch out to some of the other areas of Irish whiskey, um, there's actually quite a unique and broad variety of different Irish whiskeys out there. Um, I have a couple other ones that uh, we'll try at some point or another. And um, mm-hmm. I really I really like them. There's Proper 12. 
um, which is actually quite unique and delicious. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm getting more impressed with Ireland as we go. Amen. There's a. It's slightly tannic at the right at the beginning, actually, which is surprising. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready for that, and it took me a second sip to like pick up on that. But it's definitely um, dry and then very sweet around the mouth, like that honey. Um, a little bit of roasted, like roasted walnuts or something. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. And they're like that kind of an oaky tannin that kind of moves through the whole palate, but mm-hmm. it's not overwhelming. It's strongest at the front, and then it pops its head up again at the end. But there's like caramel candies and citrus at the end to kind of balance that out. So it's yeah. not like it's you know it's it's a very smooth whiskey. Overwhelming. It's yeah. not like overpowering or anything like that. And that is something I got to give a lot of credit to almost every Irish whiskey I've ever tasted has been extraordinarily mm-hmm. smooth, mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of a vague term, right? What does smooth mean? Like sure. some people, there's going to be some subjection ABD. to that, but sure. Compared to a lot of what we've had, um, sure. Which has become uh, quite a variety um, yeah, at man. the very least now 42 <laughs> uh, on top of all the things we've tasted outside of the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's a good variety of, uh, Although it is funny because now whenever I get, whenever I get something new or if I see something that I haven't, you know, that I haven't touched in a little while, that's still got enough to, to be true to its flavor. I'm like, Oh, I got to pour like four ounces worth of samples for this mm-hmm. <laughs> or six yeah, ounces yeah. for, you know, when we have a guest. <laughs> I, but, uh, I also yeah. started an infinity bottle Ooh. Uh, because I had, a, I had a number of bottles left with maybe just a couple of ounces in them. And I was like, I don't okay. want to let these just oxidate and, and get bad. So I poured them all into a uh, Knob Creek bottle and uh, okay. let that sit for a while. We'll see how it goes. Fill yeah. it up as I go. Infinity bottles are an interesting discussion that a couple people have brought up in the podcast group. Basically, it's the idea of exactly what Justin just described. Mm-hmm. You pour a cu- like an ounce from different things all into one bottle. Um, I had a very, very failed infinity bottle experiment <laughs> a couple of years back. And what happened was, and I know the, you know, it gave me a much greater respect for blended whiskeys, actually, mm-hmm. because I realized how much work it is to, to make it taste good. Because you have different viscosities. So you have some yeah. things that are very, very viscous and like rich. And then you have some things that are very light mouthfeel, which this has a, a lighter medium mouthfeel. It's yeah. not super heavy. It's not heavy. Um, but then the problem is it's kind of like oil and water where you have different densities. So different layers like shape around weird. And then you have something that's super smoky and aggressive like Lagavulin <laughs> blended in with something like Glenfiddich that yeah. is like the, the manila scotch of or the manila envelope of scotch. And like... That just it just doesn't go well. Um, there's no, you, ways to do yeah, it. Yeah, you definitely want to mix way. things of a of a certain persuasion together. Mm. Um, you know, Whoa. I went with uh, yeah. What I had uh, left over was some uh, some Speyside scotches, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of Irish whiskey, and some uh, some rum, some Venezuelan rum. Uh, so that'll be an interesting blend. I'm excited for that. Um, and I had it in a totally empty bourbon barrel or bourbon uh, bottle. So. We'll have to try that on the podcast sometime. That'll be fun. Speaking of infinity, shall we pray to the God who has been around for an infinite amount of time? Mm, Amen. Let's open. If you have a Valley of Vision, let's open to page 78 together. And we can praise and worship and pray to the God who listens uh, Mm. to his people. And how amazing is that, that we actually, we have the ear of the almighty infinite God at our disposal and he will listen to us and answer our prayers not because of anything that we've done but because he is a good good God Amen. thou God of all grace thou hast given me a savior produce in me a faith to live by him to make him all of my desire 
all my hope, all my glory. May I enter him as my refuge, build on him as my foundation, and walk in him as my way, follow him as my guide, conform to him as my example, receive his instructions as my prophet, and rely on his intercession as my high priest, and obey him as my king. May I never be ashamed of him or his words, but joyfully bear his reproach, never displease him by unholy or imprudent conduct. Never count it a glory if I take it patiently when buffeted for a fault. Never make it the multitude my model. Never delay when my word invites me to advance. May thy dear son preserve me from this present and evil world, so that its smiles never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I seek a country, my title to it becoming daily more clear, my meetness for it more perfect, my foretastes of it more abundant, and whatsoever I do, may it be done in the Savior's name. Mm. Amen. Very prudent in a day and age where uh, some of us (laughs) are struggling often with uh, terror and fear and anxiety um what a what a perfectly timed prayer amen god is sovereign amen so speaking of salvation blake (laughs) what are we finally jumping into you know i i do want to as a sidebar here i just want to point out that every this wasn't intentional necessarily although i think Mm -hmm. the further we got from the closer we got to being one year of podcasting the more intentional this became we did not start our two guys talking about theology, drinking alcohol podcast with an episode about Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing an episode about Calvinism tonight either. So congratulations. You played yourself. Um, <laughs> are you sure about that? No, tonight, though, we are talking about soteriology, which is the systematic theology designation uh, for the doctrine of salvation. And this is a this is an area that I think all of us, no matter what our persuasion is, would do well to have a lot of patience and extra Mm. grace for one another. Um, It's an area where emotions run high. It's an area where people get very, very irritated very quickly. Um, It's an area where people become defensive. And it's an area that I've seen, unfortunately, uh, make people really irritable. And obviously Mm -hmm. what happens here when you get into salvation, you know, one way or another, we end up talking about matters of predestination and free will. Like ultimately, that's what gets people hung up uh, within Christian circles, right? And yep. I, I want to read this um, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter three, article eight, um, because I, I think it's you. important to to preface this, uh, where it says the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. And so the point that I want to draw out from that is that Westminster the framers of the Westminster Confession and later in the London Baptist Confession of 1689 are forewarning us 
as Christians to take care when we talk about this doctrine. Um, now, I'm going to borrow from R.C. Sproul a little bit here in that, you know, hmm. every church has a doctrine of predestination. Oh, yes. They all differ. And usually when people think of predestination, Justin, who do they think of? Who do they assume, uh, you know, invented predestination as a, as a well, concept? Well, of course, John Kelvin invented it. <laughs> he invented Obviously. predestination. Right. And he invented uh, Calvinism. Yeah. And um, therefore, we are not Christians. We are, in fact, Calvinists only. <laughs> right. right. Or, or I've heard people talk about the God of Calvinism or this and that. And so yeah. I, one thing I want to do here, which I'm borrowing this structure. I'm indebted to the late Dr. Sproul for some of his lectures on this topic. Um, I want to do a little bit of historic survey here because this doesn't just start with us in the present age here in 21st century America in 2020. True. More people you know, need like, to hear that. Say it louder for the people right. in the back, Blake. But there's a historic <laughs> church here. There's 2,000 years of Christian reflection. And likewise, this idea, you know, this doctrine, a doctrine of of predestination doesn't begin in the 1500s with Jean Calvin uh, over in France, like nor with Martin Luther Jean in Germany. Calvin. It's much older than that. I mean, I would argue that it's Paul's view and mm-hmm. therefore the biblical view. And I think, mm-hmm. but we'll get into that when we, when we dive into Calvinism a little bit more specifically, because spoiler alert, we're going to, but not tonight. <laughs> we um, are going there, people. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I think a lot of this, Justin, comes down to this idea of free will versus sovereignty. And I know mm-hmm. you and I were both on the the free willy train, if you will, for a we moment were. there. Yeah. Uh, I think you were a little more combative about it than I was, although I definitely had my combative talks with my Calvinistic friends. Yeah, I was, I was like, full-blown you know, uh, Wesleyan, uh, Arminian, and... I used to be that guy that would try to justify the sovereignty of God by saying, well, you know, if God knows you're going to take a left-hand turn on the fork in the road, I mean, he, but I mean, it didn't take away your decision to turn left. I mean, you, you know, I used to be that guy that would try to justify, uh, try, try to try to reconcile God's decorative will with this idea that man has total free libertarian free will to do as he chooses and as he pleases. Yeah. Um, and I, and I would often fight against, uh, determinism, which is often, sure. uh, what Calvinism is confused with. Um, some sure. of the smartest men I've ever talked to biblically, uh, who are unfortunately still Arminians, uh, will argue often against, uh, determinism or hyper Calvinism. Um, sure. and I'm like, that's fine. I agree with you, I, I, but I'm, that's not the position I'm taking. We need right. to talk about these things in a more, uh, friendly and peaceful environment, so that we can actually get to the crux of the issues. I think people oftentimes get too heated because they get stuck mm-hmm. in their way. They get stuck in yeah. their their own opinions. It's a pride thing. I'm guilty of it. Um, sure, same. So I think if we can approach this in a way that allows us to talk about it, talk about both sides of the issue or several sides of the issue, uh, mm-hmm. in a way that is peaceful and, and we can explain it without being polemic and, and at the same time um, not misrepresenting our brothers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of what we're going for here. Absolutely. And I like, uh, I think it was Paul Washer in some clip somewhere talking about how he has more fellowship with, you know, Tozer and Ravenhill and some of Mm -hmm. these staunch Arminians uh, than a lot of neo-Calvinists because a lot of these, this new Calvinist movement in America, the young restless reform that we're kind of in the the post young restless reform area, I think. Um, Praises. Amen. (laughs) But that a lot of that crowd got so hung up on the doctrine of election or predestination and 
and they failed to see the historic context, which we've tried on the show to always incorporate the confessions in some way into mm-hmm. um, to see that there's a bigger theology that this fits into so that so that one can't simply say, well, if it's all predestined, then why do anything? You know, why, why even do good works? Why evangelize? Right. And ultimately, there's a bigger system of theology that surrounds mm-hmm. this doctrine. This doctrine doesn't live in isolation and it doesn't fit anywhere else I've found. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's doctrine. important. I think it was um, Chandler who said, you know, if you're arrogant about the doctrines of grace, you don't understand the doctrines of grace. So these doctrines Boom. that we're about to approach and, and talk about are things that should be humbling to us as believers. Mm-hmm. They should put us in our place and remind us who, that yeah. God is totally sovereign and that mm-hmm. we shouldn't be arrogant about these things. And we need to recognize that we were once people who believed something else as well. Right. So when we go out and we talk to other people about these things and we want to share these wonderful, beautiful scriptural truths with people, mm-hmm. uh, particularly our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're not trying to convert Christians to Christianity. We're brothers yeah. and sisters. We, you know, sure. we can talk about these things without getting to the point where we're calling each other pagans or heretics right. uh, for believing in a in a different soteriological understanding of salvation. Yeah, and I mean, for me, in my experience and my own journey uh, into Reformed theology, as a, as you know, understanding the Bible this way, the issue came down to man's ability or the lack of it to choose God. Ultimately, right? Because we can we can debate metaphysical questions about, you know, did God, you know, providence, right? Did God foreordain uh, that such and such was going to get in a car accident at this time? Like, that's a different discussion. We're not talking about that doctrine Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. That's another, and it's important questions and they're related, but they're not what we're discussing. Ultimately, right, it comes down to man's ability to choose or not. And there's three major streams of soteriology or salvation theology in church history. Um, and I'm going to run down these briefly and then we'll, you know, engage in what they are and kind of what their modern equivalents might be today. Cause these date back to like the third or fourth century. They're very old. Um, so the one that I'm going to start off with is called Pelagianism, which was named after a, I believe is a British monk named Pelagius. Now there's some historic AD debate about 354 to 418. Oh snap. Oh. There's some debate about whether, you know, because it doesn't have extent, many extant writings, if any, if I recall. So mm-hmm. there's some debate about like, did he actually articulate this? But one way or another, the same thing happens with Arius, right? Like, was he really what he taught? Mm, but, but ultimately that view that we call Arianism, or in this case, the view that we call Pelagianism is derived out of their theological thought and is attributed. Mm-hmm. So for the sake of discussion, we're just going to call it Pelagianism and forego all that red tape. So in Pelagianism, the fundamental belief is that man in and of himself is able, morally capable of choosing God and being saved and that grace can assist him. It's really, you know, it's important, but it's not necessary for, it's not a necessary condition for salvation, uh, grace. So man can be saved apart from the grace of God in a Pelagian viewpoint. And and that usually comes hand in hand with asceticism, right? This idea that that good works and and getting mm-hmm. rid of uh, almost almost a form of gnosticism right this idea yeah. that we can uh we can be abstinent of sensual pleasures and we see that in other religions like buddhism mm-hmm. um and even islam and some other ones um where you know this idea that we can uh we can do things in such a way that we're actually putting off those sinful things and putting sure. off the quote unquote pleasures of this world and um and and be saved yeah and then we have semi pelagianism 
do, 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 do. which in you know has taken various forms throughout history, which we'll get to. But in general, semi-Pelagianism would articulate that God's grace is necessary for man to be saved. Mm-hmm. However, there's something man must, fallen man must do in assenting to or responding to that grace in order for that grace to become efficacious or in order for that grace Sounds to... Sounds synergistic to me. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, so, so God's grace. So Pelagianism, man can be saved apart from grace. Semi-Pelagianism, grace is necessary, but on its own, it's not sufficient apart from the response of faith. And the... Um, the fallen man must respond and assent to that grace or, uh, you know, or cooperate with grace now, or else, you know, he can't be saved. You see, you see, a, there is a quite a wide variety of semi-Pelagianism as well. I mean, you have oh, like yeah. the Arminian view where there's right. this idea of prevenient grace, that grace mm-hmm. that just exists and then man can can essentially latch onto that grace by choosing to, to be saved. Yeah. But then you have like Mormonism, which would say grace comes in after you've done all that you can do um mm-hmm. so you have to you have to do your part and then grace will pick up really what's left sure. over um so so there's a, a broad kind of spectrum there um yeah. that kind of leaves it up for interpretation in many ways sure and then lastly but certainly not least at least not in our view you have augustinianism <laughs> in which man is entirely corrupted by sin and is entirely dependent upon the grace of god uh and apart Plead from nothing god's but grace the blood. Amen. Cannot be saved. And not only is grace necessary, but it is sufficient to uh, to cause grace apart from any cooperation on the part of man. Because in mm-hmm. the Augustinian view, uh, which we'll get into in coming weeks when we start talking about Calvinism. But in the Augustinian view, it takes the view of sin nature that we've been ascribing when we talked about homardiology, when we talked about the fall of man, mm-hmm. uh, which is that man is dead in trespasses and sins. And apart from the grace of God, cannot choose the good. Now, your boy, Jonathan Edwards, used some very, <laughs> I, I think, very helpful distinctions yes. in this. Uh, he described man as having the natural ability to make choices, right? It, it would be absurd to say that we don't make choices. We make choices every day. Mm-hmm. I'm making a choice right now to pick up and have another sip of this whiskey. But um, what Edwards said that man lacked was the moral ability to choose God. And that also earlier was sh- uh, showed up uh, with Augustine in terms of man having a free will. He's free to do what he wants, but the moral liberty uh, or the freedom to choose the good uh, isn't there. I don't know. What, do you, what are your yeah. thoughts on those categories? So I think too often uh, Calvinists and often cage stage Calvinists are too quick to say, no, man doesn't have free will. Um I I think that's actually kind of a misrepresentation of the truth. I think we do have free will. The problem is our free will is bound to only act within our nature. So by nature, before regeneration, we are literally bound and by chain, you know, the scripture says we're we're bound by the chains of sin. Uh, We are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. So if we're a slave to sin, all we can do is act sinfully. So we don't have the ability to act outside of our nature. A good uh, a good illustration I've often seen is if you put a, a pile of carrots and a pile of vomit in a room and you put a bunny in there, the bunny has the uh, faculties to choose either, but the bunny will never choose the vomit. It's going right. to choose the carrots because that's within its nature. And likewise, you throw a... Um, you know, a vulture in there, and it's going to do the opposite because mm-hmm. by nature it it wants to always do that one thing. So by mm-hmm. nature, we only want to sin until God mm-hmm. saves us, and then He breaks those chains, and then we now have the ability, the the true free will, uh, so sure. to speak, to act and do things that are in accordance with God's will and God's word. Um, mm-hmm. 
so do we have free will? Yes. Some people like to say free agency. We have free agency to act however we want within our... Uh, so, and that's the big distinction between you know, Calvinism and determinism mm-hmm. is this idea that God is literally determining when you pick your nose and when you, what, what French fry you're going to pick up next and which, how many sips of whiskey you're going to take. It's not as though God has come down and taken our hands and literally forced us in every action that we're going to do. Right. Um, but he has decreed the beginning from the end and who's going to be saved and how we're going to be saved and the things that are going to happen in our lives. Um, you know, he's not the author of sin, but he decrees mm-hmm. sin to come to pass, you know? So, it's one of those things where it's like we, we need to, uh, as my Presbyterian friends often say, we distinguish. Right? Oh, <laughs> that's my line, Justin. Uh, and I think Edwards makes another helpful distinction here um, where he talks about in the freedom of the will, I believe it is, um, mm-hmm. what is free will? Well, the will is just the mind choosing. Yes. It's literally just the, the the faculty of your you in your mind making a decision. And again, to what you said the will is free according to its nature. Like unless you're being coerced by external forces, mm-hmm. the will is free to do like you're free to do what you want. And the problem is a moral ability. I like, uh, there's a, I think it's in Les's film Calvinist an interview with Paul Washer, where he says that Joseph's brothers, you know, the, Joseph taken away to Egypt, they sold him into slavery. It says they could not speak a kind word to him. Yeah. Well, they all knew, ancient Aramaic, like they could all speak the language. (laughs) They had the, the, they had the natural ability to do the thing. Yes. But the, the issue was a heart corruption issue. It was a moral issue. Right. And obviously, you know, we'll jump into that a little more in the coming weeks, but it's important. Yeah. I can't remember if it was Edwards or if it was Luther who said that we can't choose God because we won't choose God. Mm -hmm. We just won't in our natural state. We will not. And because we will not, we don't have the ability to do that. You know, the, the Romans talks about this. We we cannot please God and we won't please God. So we won't and we can't. Both of those things are present there. Um, sure. and, they, and they go hand in hand, you know. Um, it's it's We have the faculties, but we are unable. Sure. And I think it, it is interesting to look and Sproul does good. I'm going to keep referencing this throughout because it's so good. Basically, yeah. I was going to reference this at the end, but everybody just go listen. Take the three hours Go listen to Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, the lecture series. Um, it's one of the best, just simple breakdowns, especially especially to our brothers and sisters who listen to the show who aren't of a Reformed persuasion, who find maybe us a little bit abrasive. I think Sproul, when I was very much not in a Reformed persuasion, listening to Sproul, break this down, look through, histor- look through history, look at the text, um, It he was so gracious and kind. Mm-hmm. And I thought his explanation made sense. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do agree with it. Like, I was semi-Pelagian. So I was like, yeah, I agree with that idea that grace is necessary. But, like, I got to cooperate with grace or else I can't be saved. Like, that just kind of makes sense <laughs> to me. And so to see him uh, examine that idea, I thought was really good. And so I'm going to be borrowing from that, obviously, a little bit. But one one thing he did, you know, because, again, everybody associates predestination with John Calvin, uh, which is ir- funny because Calvin, like, Luther talked a lot about predestination, especially mm-hmm. in his freedom of the will. Or bondage of the will, sorry. And um, I'm confusing with Edwards there. And Augustine, or Augustine, I never know how to say his name, uh, also. Uh, Augustine. <laughs> oh, also spoke a lot about predestination, right? And um, I mean, the word is in the Bible. It's in Ephesians chapter one, right? Mm-hmm. And you've been predestined before the foundation of the world, right? So, so the word is there. So it's something that we have to wrestle with. And 
as I said, we'll we'll dive in, you know, to the five the so-called five points of Calvinism uh in the coming weeks. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say but, if if yeah, if you guys are wondering, okay, okay, show me this in scripture. We are gonna when we as we dive into these episodes, we are yeah. gonna dive into the scripture that um yep. For each one of these points of of, uh, of the acrostic that we're going to touch on, um, we, we are going to dive in. I will say uh, one one good place to start would be Romans, uh, Romans 7 even in particular. Start there, yeah. go read Romans 7, 8, and 9. Um, it starts off right in Romans 7. Paul says this, and I think this is important to understand uh, where we get the idea that the Augustinian view or the Calvinistic view or what we would call the biblical view uh, comes right from Scripture. Um, and, and you may be familiar with this, but in Romans 7, starting at verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. Mm. First of all, let's let's stop there. What do you mean you don't understand your own actions? <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> what? How? How do you not understand what you're doing? He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but mm-hmm. I do the very thing that I hate. Right? So yeah. there's that war with the flesh and the spirit there. Mm-hmm. Um, we see even within the saved man, Total depravity, this idea of, of of the bondage of the will and, and this idea of the flesh warring against the spirit where he still continues to sin because that's the nature that he's shedding as he's sanctified and grows. Um, he says, I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is important. There's nothing good in you. Uh, So therefore you can't do anything that's going to be good because there's nothing good in you that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Okay. Mm -hmm. He speaks specifically there of our abilities in the flesh. Mm -hmm. In the flesh, you don't have the capacity to do what is right. You don't. You simply yeah. don't. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do, not what I want, is what I keep on doing. So he, he goes on to this whole rant basically saying, I can't stop sinning. It's mm-hmm. it's warring against me in the flesh. I don't have the ability to do what is good. But don't worry, the chapter goes on and there is hope and there is goodness to come. It does. And it's also worth noting there, as as Paul is talking about the desire, um, I think it's important to note also that Paul, at the time of the writing— of that letter obviously is regenerate by the spirit regenerated yes. by the spirit. And so he does now that he's been made alive and we'll get into that. He does have a desire to please God. And yet what what is so frustrating to him is that he wants to please God. And yet in the flesh, he's completely incapable and the yes. sin nature continues to, to drag him away. Uh, and I wanted to briefly touch on the Westminster again uh, on chapter nine of free will. I'm only going to mm-hmm. read the first three articles. Um, I think we actually touched on this a little bit when we had Eric on for, probably from the London Baptist confession. Yeah, we did. Um, but uh, Westminster nine one says God hath endued the will of man with a natural Liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. So This is talking about cr- original creation, that state of innocency that we discussed in homardiology. Article two, man in his state of innocency, oh, what, had freedom and power to will and to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God, yet mutably or changeably mm. so that he might fall from it. And article three says, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability to will any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, 
is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Mm. So I think I, I think that's a really great articulation. That's a confessional articulation uh, of really what we would call the five points of Calvinism, which is funny because <laughs> I find <laughs> I find the five points of Calvinism in one sense very helpful mm-hmm. as an acrostic, as a, a, a device that that gives us you know these five letters that we're able to easily remember. Uh, and they stand for things and we're able to, you know, it, it's a good memory tool. It's also extraordinarily frustrating sometimes because sure. it makes, I think it, A, it's divorced from the confessional theology, mm-hmm. which is problematic. But B, it it's easy to get lost in it, right? So you have, I mean, we'll just go through the five points, right? Uh, the acrostic is tulip. So you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Uh, and it's very easy, particularly with some of those names that are a bit antiquated mm-hmm. to today's language, to just attack that and be like, well, yeah. you know what? You think people are, you know, only do are, are as bad as they can possibly be, yeah. which like, no, yeah. no Calvinist believes yeah, that. Yeah, not utter depravity, total right. depravity, <laughs> right. which right. is why it's helpful to have these discussions, right? It's helpful to Correct. say, okay, this is the actual belief. I mean, like you said, when you divorce it from confessional theology, you end mm-hmm. up uh, with people like... Um, John MacArthur, who is a wonderful Bible teacher, Calvinist, but he's not confessional. And I think that leads to other issues that he has, you know, eschatologically and some other, th- mm-hmm. other things, um, which, yeah. you know, uh, great. I love that we have him on our team and he's wonderful. And he's truly one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard, oh, yeah. but you get kind of a weird theology when you divorce it from confessionalism. Oh, sure. um, those things go hand in hand and the, and Tulip was drawn out of that and it's not meant to be by itself. Right. Um, I think it was a, an episode of the pub uh, cast that said that it's like a diamond, but you got to have the right set fitting for the diamond. And yeah. so you have the doctrines of grace, but you got to put them in its setting. You got to put it yeah. in its place so that it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so shout out less. Shout <laughs> out, out to less Tanner. Tanner, Tanner let's go. Yeah. go, go listen to the pub cast. Uh, and also go watch Calvinist by, by, uh, Les Lanfear. Also watch spirit and truth. And then listen to episode nine oh, of distilling man. theology where we had less on <laughs> snap and nine B that happened like and six months B. later. <laughs> Throwback. Uh, we've, we've since learned. Uh, but yeah, I, I think one thing that Sproul talked about, uh, in that lecture series that, that rings true to me, right? This idea mm-hmm. of Pelagianism. And this isn't just coming from a Calvinistic or Augustinian standpoint. Like I think Pelagianism, this idea that man can be saved apart from grace, is just an early form of humanism, mm-hmm. right? Like fundamentally, if you're saying man is basically good, morally good enough even to warrant salvation, well, then of course you're going to make all these humanistic assumptions that like well, you know yeah. going to be great. And essentially, that would make uh, uh, semi-Pelagianism semi-humanism. You have this idea that man has some good enough in him that he has the ability to choose his own fate, so to speak. You know, um, if God simply knows the decision you're going to make, makes his decision based on your decision, that makes God conditional, and that makes you ultimately the savior of yourself because you have enough good in you to make the decision to be saved, and therefore you are eternally powerful, and that's a huge problem if you want to be a Christian. Now, I think, fortunately... Uh, most Arminians are just yeah. simply inconsistent Calvinists. <laughs> they affirm most of Tulip most of the time uh, because yeah. they recognize man is, you can't escape it. I mean, you recognize man is totally depraved. You recognize yeah. that God must be sovereign and that mm-hmm. God has control over salvation. They always pray like Calvinists because they're, yeah. God, please change my friend's heart. Well, isn't your friend have the ability? Why don't you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So 
they're just inconsistent, lovable, great friends. Uh, but truly, they should adopt uh, the Augustinian biblical view <laughs> wow. of soteriology. Well, so next week, we're actually going to do an episode about the cage stage uh, of Calvinism <laughs> and how some some new Calvinists have this tendency when they, when they learn about the doctrines of grace to get overly excited and, and yeah. want to you know address everybody. But in seriousness, though, I think... Um, I think it's important to wrestle through these issues mm-hmm. with our brothers and sisters that we disagree with. I think I I would personally put poly, full Pelagianism on the heresy. side of heresy and on the side of outside of Christian thinking, mm-hmm. right? I would mm-hmm. say if, if you are someone who affirms or believes that man can be saved of your own works and apart from grace, uh, repent, pray, Seek and understand the gospel. We are not your pastors. Go talk to your pastor. Go to a, <laughs> a pastor at a Bible church, right? Like we're just two guys on the internet. Um, it's true. However, uh, on the flip side, semi-Pelagians, but I very much consider friends? brothers. Amen. <laughs> and uh, and I've had some amazing conversations with semi-Pelagians. And mm-hmm. I find oftentimes, again, it's, it's very similar to the covenant theology discussion in some ways. Sure. In that many of the issues are, are hermeneutical in how mm-hmm. we understand the text. But on the flip side, unlike the covenant theology differences between uh, Baptists and, and Presbyterians, I think with Calvinism and Arminianism or Augustinianism and semi-Pelagianism, there is a tension of presuppositions as well mm-hmm. um, that maybe steps outside the realm of just your your uh, hermeneutics. Which, speaking of, I don't want to totally sidebar <laughs> here, but if you haven't checked out our friends over at Assurance of Pardon, they've been doing mm-hmm. an amazing series on hermeneutics. Preach. and. Showing that really, like, you don't have to have a fancy degree from a college to be good at hermeneutics. You just have to read the context. And, you know, Jeremiah 2911 is not about you graduating from high school. I'm sorry. They had a great episode about that. Uh, Or the one in um, uh, Chronicles, if my people call by my name, like, sorry, it's not about America. Sorry to break it to you guys. So good, Um, dude. But but they've been amazing. (laughs) Definitely go check out Scott and Gage over there. Uh, And again, it's just it's useful for the church to be equipped with these tools because yes, it's good for we we should absolutely be gathering bodily with the Lord's people on the Lord's day uh, and hearing the gospel and sit under good preaching. And it's also really good for the church to have these tools in our own hands so that in our own study we can dive deeper. yeah, I th- but but like I said, I think the, the semi-Pelagian issue starts to get into, a, ironically, um, a bit more of a philosophical issue where we have this American, and frankly, I think slightly pagan concept of libertarian free will that gets imported into our Christian theology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this idea that we are morally neutral and we can choose what we want to choose. And obviously, we're going to examine this in more depth yeah. coming up, so I don't want to dive too far down that rabbit hole right now, but I just want to mention it in way of passing, you know. And, and I think it's important, too, for because some people I've seen on the Internet, especially because, you know, how keyboard warriors are uh, often will uh, spout off this this nonsense about Armenian Armenianism being a false gospel. Mm-hmm. You're not saved if you don't believe in Calvinism, et cetera. And that drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the some of the most brilliant minds in church history have been uh, wrong on the issue of soteriology. And that's fine because they have some they've brought some great things to the table and they understood uh, truly, uh, at the very least, the fundamentals of what salvation required. They understood sure. repentance. They understood their sin. They understood um, their need for Christ. And so, while they may, while we may disagree, uh, right. and we would say they may be confused a little bit about 
soteriology and how it happens, we understand sure. that they still recognize what needed to happen. And there's right. a there's an important distinction to be made there. You know, yeah. um, I, I think you can look at somebody like John Wesley and you can learn a lot from him. Absolutely. Um, Tozer is my favorite Arminian. I mean, he... <laughs> And I think part of it is because a lot of times he talks like a Calvinist, but he 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 just recognizes the awe and the sovereignty of God, and and um, mm-hmm. I, I I mean I can't imagine trying to reconcile that with this idea of free will, but um, he yeah. he he's just go and read these people and learn from mm-hmm. them. Um, you can learn a lot about your personal holiness and what yeah. holiness should look like in the life of a Christian from the Wesley brothers. I mean, yeah. truly, they were a gift to the church. Um, and I have no doubt that we will see them uh, in eternity, and I can't wait. It'll be great. Yeah, man. Well, I like there's a there's a quote about like pray like an Arminian and sleep like a Calvinist, which is of <laughs> course a misnomer because uh, some of the if you read the Valley of Vision, which is all Puritan prayers, who are all Calvinists, right? Mm-hmm. There's no shortage of deep penitent repentance uh, mm-hmm. and and recognition of our need to grow in holiness and in maturity yeah. through sanctification. Well, and that's like what I talked about at the beginning, this idea that if you actually understand these doctrines of grace, you yes. should be nothing but humbled by the fact that God would save us at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, it's so good. Mm. You know, it makes me think about something that we have coming up. <laughs> it's going to be very exciting. So... I know we just did a giveaway, but it's our it's our one year episode. So we got to do another giveaway. (laughs) So uh, Crossway Books was kind enough to provide us with a copy of Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ to give away. And Justin, what else are we giving away? Not one, but two (gasps) distilling theology of rocks glasses. What? So uh, if you don't know, that's the wider glass, the circular glass that allows you to mix drinks as well as just enjoy your favorite distilled spirit or any drink out of it, really, if that's what you choose. Mm-hmm. Um, use that free will of yours to decide what to put in that <gasps> glass. <laughs> that would fall. Yeah, that would fall under your, your actual free will, not this made up uh, libertarian free will. Anyways, uh, so guys, go over to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway uh, and you can enter now. Through October 23rd, we're going to announce the winner on the podcast episode that drops on the 27th of October. So get on it. You got 10 days. Share it with your friends. Uh, You guys participated uh, wonderfully last time. Now, why did we pick the whole Christ? Uh, Because it... There's there's another side to this, another thing that we do in, in the midst of the group, although we've I've fallen behind because life's been a little, dun, little crazy. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so we do a reading group, uh, <gasps> and you can actually find us on Facebook. Just search Distilling Theology Reading Group. Um, we have fallen a bit behind because life has gotten pretty hectic lately, and a lot of us are behind in the reading. But we have been reading through Herman Bobbing's Wonderful Works of God. We've had mm. some amazing, wonderful discussions. And so we have chose The Whole Christ to be our next a book on the list that we work through together as brothers and sisters in Christ and discuss. Um, and if you tell enough of your friends about distilling theology, oh. hopefully we can have the author of the whole mm. Christ on our show. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that because that might be a little, there's, there's the difference between Justin and I, I'm an amillennialist. So, you know, I'm like already, but not yet. And Justin's a post-millennialist where he's like, you know, slightly over-realized Send eschatology, it. I think. No, I'm just kidding. We'll get to that someday. Uh, I just had to, had to drop that joke in there. Um, but The Whole Christ is probably the best book I've ever read on the subject of legalism and antinomianism, which are often seen as these total opposites, right? And basically, I'm going to summarize a little bit of it. So Sinclair Ferguson examines by way of looking at this old controversy, 
from Scottish Presbyterianism, right? So these are all people who affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith. And mm-hmm. on the one hand, the, the one party was accusing, uh, you know, party A was accusing party B of being legalists and party B was accusing party A of being antinomian. And they were all affirming the same thing. So it's like, whoa, wait a second. So it's a very interesting study. Shows that reformed people are not immune to these tendencies and issues because ultimately, <laughs> what you know, and 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 spoiler alert, it's about the law and the gospel, right? And hey. so, both legalism and antinomianism are basically bedfellows, or they're really the same problem, just different sides of the coin, because they both ultimately emphasize the law at the expense of the gospel rather than seeing the gospel as the fulfillment of that law. Mm. And you know, that's mm. spoiler alert for the book, but it's so good; it's the best short, easy to read treatment I've ever read on the subject. I love it. So uh, be sure to enter this giveaway so that you too can own a copy of The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson and not one, but two distilling theology rocks glasses. That way you can sit down with a friend, share a glass of whiskey and talk about The Whole Christ together as you edify iron sharpens iron. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Amen. And so next week on Distilling Theology is going to be a surprise, so stay tuned. Also, be sure to head over to shopdistillingtheology.com to get the latest merch. We still have our Herman Bobbing quote mugs. We are working on other things, so stay tuned to see that going on. And Justin, how else can people get a hold of some mugs and see some mugs? Please join us on Patreon. Become part of the Distilling Theology family. We'd love to have you. Um, you get some perks and we get some perks. It's a give and it's a take. We're taking from you, but we're giving back. I could say it's a little <laughs> synergistic. <laughs> uh, if you join us on Patreon at four ninety nine a month, less than the cup of a ridiculous Starbucks Frappuccino, especially the holiday versions that are coming up, uh, join us there. You will get uh, this content live. You will get it early. You will get to see our faces. You will get to see the things that we're holding up, our whiskeys, our mugs, our mug shots. Um, (laughs) You get all the goods. uh, Plus, you'll get exclusive behind the scenes, bonus content, extended conversations. Uh, When we had Sam Renahan on, for example, the whole conversation was like two and a half hours. And uh, unless you're a patron, you only got an hour of that. So join us there. You also get a discount on the store. You can save money on mugs and in the future on glasses, T-shirts, and other fun merchandise that we will be providing. Um, on top of that, if you decided to join us at the $14.99 level, after three months of support, you will get your own exclusive Distilling Theology patron-only mug that Whoa. no one else will get unless you're a patron. Um, and so we're starting to see those pop up in people's hands, and it's really yeah. cool to see. Um, plus, you'll get additional bonus content as well as all the other stuff. Uh, That's right. And so we're really excited. You can also check us out where, Blake? So if people want to follow us and get updates, go to facebook.com slash distilling theology and like and follow our page. We post our updates up there. We post our giveaway updates up there. A lot of fun. If you want to see posts, uh, photos, six days a week, we schedule them out. We put a lot of work into our Instagram. So you can go over to instagram.com, look up at distilling theology. And uh, we try to post photos of good books that we're reading, the Bible, uh, different spirits we're tasting, cocktails. I posted some cocktail recipes on there. So like, it's going to be pretty exciting. You can also check us out. some live streams. Oh, shoot. What up? You can also check us out in our Facebook group, which we've already mentioned, but it's amazing. Just look up Distilling Theology, click on the group, uh, just ask, answer the couple member questions. We'd love to have you join in the discussion. It's super chill, a lot of fun. Uh, We've had people like 
in a liquor store, like post photos of a wall of whiskey and be like, this is my budget. This is what I like. What should I get? And people flock in and answer. And the same thing with bookstores too. People are like, I'm looking at these five books. I only have a budget for one. What should I get? And it's been amazing to see that community grow and thrive. We're like 528 members now. It's ridiculous. I love it. Speaking of communities, oh, we are part of a community called the Society of Reformed Podcasters. We are proud members and you can join us there listen to us but you can also get a whole host on this mega feed of theologically sound wonderfully reformed and extremely exciting podcasts with other podcasts including and potentially in the future not limited to oh. assurance of pardon the bobcast christ in context yours truly fast god stuff reformed brotherhood the reformed pilgrims sipping on theology and the steady anchor podcasts Go to the reform. Go to reformpodcasts with an s dot com. It's important. Oh. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> go there, and you will have literally all the content you could ever want as far as uh, reformed uh, theological uh, podcasting. So go there, show our brothers some support. Amen. And you will be thankful, edified, and sanctified. Selah. Well, Justin, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink. Do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria.